0: We have um, been uh, looking at uh, raising children over the last few weeks, and uh, we're using uh, Dr. Dobson, who is uh, an outstanding authority on this subject, and then we, we, we break it up into half-hour uh, segments so that it gives us a chance to, to talk and to uh, address this issue. You know, we just came out of boot camp, and so uh, this is really kind of high in our Uh, consciousness. I'm gonna minister along those lines here in a little bit, Uh, but um, uh, this has been very, very effective. The video we're going to see over the next two weeks is called The Strong-Willed Child, and so I want to ask a question number one. How many here you would have been called a strong-willed child when you were growing up? Okay, all right. How many of you have raised a strong-willed child here? Okay. And so um, uh, this is an issue. And so um, this is going to be very, very interesting and insightful. Uh, sometimes you have babies, and they're very compliant. They, they change their own diapers. They're just very great kids. Uh, uh, but then there are other children that you start looking for the 666 mark on their forehead uh, because they're, you know, they're bad. And so that's just, that's just the mystery of life. And, and so, uh, so techniques and methods that may work for one don't necessarily work for another. We just come out of a boot camp uh, where we have all, all kinds of structure and we do different things. Uh, but there are sometimes particular boots that need a different type of um, uh, medicine uh, to minister to them, and, that, and that's life. And so uh, this is to highlight this reality to help parents hear that perhaps you're dealing with that or maybe you know someone who is and you can kind of give them some direction but also to gain a little insight into the personality of the strong-willed child and that it's not necessarily a bad thing. So we're going to go ahead and have this video. We'll stop it about 30 minutes into it and we'll have some discussion. America's best-loved family advocate, Dr. James Dobson presents Building a Family Legacy. This series of eight films takes you on a journey from bringing up boys and girls to building a lifelong marriage and ultimately creating a lasting legacy for your family. We invite you to enjoy The Strong-Willed Child.
1: Hi, I'm Ryan Dobson, and you're going to hear a lot of stories my dad tells of my sister and me growing up. I'm guessing that the subject is something you'll understand. It's about raising strong-willed children. Well, despite the odds, I grew up, went to school, and got married. And now I have a couple of mini-me's of my own. Their names are Lincoln and Lucy, and like I was at their age, they are on the move. I have to admit that when I watched this film, the first thing I did was laugh at my dad's haircut and his sideburns and glasses, but I quickly realized how timeless and valuable his information is. His guidance is so helpful because when this was filmed in 1978, he was right where so many of us are now, with kids of his own at home. I know you'll recognize yourself and your children in these instructions, and just maybe you'll find solutions that you haven't thought of before. I know I did. So it's with pride and pleasure that I introduce my dad, Dr. James Dobson, and this film, The Strong-Willed Child.
2: I want you all to meet my very best friend on the face of the earth. That person just happens to be here by a stroke of luck this evening. I want you to meet my wife, Shirley. Would you greet her, please? But I also want you to meet somebody else that's here that I feel very fortunate to have in the group tonight. For the first time in two years, my mother is able to be here and I'm delighted to introduce Myrtle Dobson to you. Will you stand up, please? That woman right there that you just saw is probably the foremost disciplinarian in the whole world (laughs) she has all those skills you know that must be true because of how well i turned out (laughs) what i don't understand is how come the moment we made her a grandmother she forgot everything she knew (laughs) i really wish my children could have come i would like for you to have met my whole family folks because we're just wonderful people You're just going to love us when you get to know us And I really ought to introduce my children to you Even though they're not here Because you're going to hear about them all weekend long And isn't that a dreary thought We have a 13-year-old girl named Danae Who's the absolute joy of my life Just going into adolescence And then there's little 8-year-old Ryan Ryan being 8 now is He's coming out of it a little bit But Ryan has been a textbook toddler he has had every single characteristic that the textbooks say are supposed to be there you know when a child turns 18 months of age between about 18 and 40 months of age all of that emotional enthusiasm and excitement and everything is supposed to bubble forth from somewhere and the very day Ryan turned 18 months of age it was as though a little voice said now kid now <laughs> took off running that day and he hasn't slowed down since he is on the move. He is into everything. He is never still. It is impossible for him to hold still, even if he desired to do so, and he most certainly does not. <laughs> trying to get Ryan to hold still is like trying to nail Jello to a tree. <laughs> this isn't gonna happen. Somebody said it's like trying to sew a button on a poached egg. <laughs> But an event took place when Ryan was two years of age that I think is very important for you all to know because it just kind of explains who Ryan is. You won't be able to understand him through the course of the weekend unless I share it with you. When Ryan was two, I was home alone with him. Shirley was gone someplace and his sister was in school. And I suddenly realized that it had been about two minutes since I'd heard from Ryan. Now in our house, silence is not golden. When you haven't heard from Ryan, you go find out what he's into or what he's about to fall off of, because uh, he's a hazard to himself and the whole family. And his first question is, how does it work? And his second question is, how can I destroy it? So uh, I thought he was in his bedroom where I'd seen him two or three minutes before. And I went in there to see what he was doing, and Ryan was not there. I saw that he'd been there, uh, but he was not there. And so I followed the debris around into the living room where i expected him to be but he was not there either and i went in our bedroom and he was not there and i went all over the house and i mean in just about two minutes time that little two-year-old had managed to disappear and i was starting to panic because i could see him running down the middle of a freeway somewhere and finally i went into the kitchen and i looked through the kitchen window out into the backyard where we have a kind of a circular driveway that curves around and i saw that somehow ryan had managed at two years now two years of age to go out of the back door get the door open go down the steps and up into the back of a truck which some builders had parked there now i have no idea how in the world the kid got up into the back of that truck because it was farther off the ground than he was but when i saw him ryan was trying to get down and he was hanging off the back of this thing from the waist downward and his feet were still suspended about 18 inches from the ground and i saw he's going to kill himself there's just no way he could get down so i came out of the back door and i slipped up behind him and i put my hands under him like this to catch him when he fell because i knew he was going down and ryan did not know that i was there he didn't hear me coming but when i got up close to him i noticed that he was talking to himself now he wasn't screaming he wasn't crying he wasn't even calling for me but he was probing empty space with one foot back here and he was saying somebody help the boy So Ryan's grandmother is home helping the boy uh, This weekend And uh, I wish that he could have come But it's too short a trip And uh, I want to tell you all From the bottom of my heart And I really mean this That I think the greatest thrill And privilege in my life And I know Shirley agrees with me Is having the opportunity To take those two little lives Not whom God has given to me He didn't give them to me He loaned them to me for a very short time, and to have the opportunity to train them and love them and guide them and build in the values that I care about and introduce them to the God that I love and prepare them for a life of service to their fellow man and to God, there can be no more important responsibility than that. And I think you all probably agree with that or you wouldn't be here (laughs) yourselves. I do worry, however, about a country that's about decided that that responsibility is a waste of time and that we really ought to be doing more important things with our time. Speaking for Shirley and me, for both of us, I think the opportunity to raise those two children exceeds all other tasks, including what I'm here to do with you all this weekend. I want to talk to you this evening about a subject that I feel is extremely important. It's an aspect of children's nature which you will not find in the textbooks on child development. I've never seen it there, and yet every parent alive is aware of it, at least vaguely, if not directly. Let me see if I can set it up this way. Let's suppose, folks, that you have a seven-year-old child, and he gets up in the morning, and he's glad to be alive, and he's kind of like Ryan, and he's loaded with energy. He does not know what it is like to get tired, and the sun's coming up, and he's so glad to be alive, and he's going 1,000 miles an hour, and he doesn't mean to be bugging anybody. I mean, he's not really looking for a fight, but he's sitting at the table in the morning, and he's fooling around, and he's acting silly, and you tell him to settle down, but it's just hard for him to do it. And finally, he wheels around, and his elbow catches the milk, and the glass goes over, and the milk runs on the table and off on the floor for the third time. <laughs> Let's suppose this same child was told and intended to feed the cat this morning he planned to do that that's what he wanted to do it was his cat his responsibility and he was going to feed the cat however he got up a little bit late and he couldn't find one of his shoes and when he finally did find it he sat on the floor fooling with the knot and uh, by the time he got it all together the bus was there and he didn't get around to feeding the cat today he meant to he just didn't get it done Let's suppose that he leaves your best saw out in the rain. Now, some of you know this kid, don't you? <laughs> Gets it all rusty. Let's suppose that he uh, loses his bicycle, he leaves it all over town and forgets to bring his books home. You know, there's just a long series of what I would call, I suppose what anybody would call, childish irresponsibilities now folks childish irresponsibility is an absolute certainty in childhood i think god made children unable to carry adult levels of responsibility because their little minds and bodies are not capable of withstanding the pressures that we undergo trying to carry our responsibilities They can't handle migraine headaches and ulcers and all the rest of it, high blood pressure, everything that comes with this kind of pressure. They can't carry high levels of responsibility. And you shouldn't expect them to. And I think when this occurs, your obligation as parents in a very patient way is to take the child a little further in the direction of mature responsibility, keeping it consistent with his age but not expecting him to carry excessive levels of responsibility. He can't do it. It requires patience. As a matter of fact, punishment and harshness over matters of responsibility, I believe, are wrong because you can teach it so much easier with a game and with a pleasant approach. Let me give you an example. In our home and in our family, we wanted to teach our children the simple little task of putting a napkin in the lap before you eat. Now that doesn't look like too big a deal. Should be able to handle that pretty well. All you do is you take it off the table and you shake it out and put it in the lap. Folks, we told our kids about that about 743 times (laughs) and it just wasn't sticking. You know, they just didn't seem to hear it over and over and over again, especially in restaurants. uh, Danae, don't forget, put the napkin in the lap. They weren't getting the message. So now we don't talk about it in our family anymore. Don't mention the napkin, putting the napkin in the lap. Instead, we play a game in our family. And that game says that if you take one bite of food before remembering to put the napkin in the lap, you have to go in your bedroom and count out loud to 25. And folks, you cannot believe how foolish Shirley and I feel. (laughs) Two grown adults Standing in our bedroom, counting to 25. (laughs) Or what's worse, standing outside a restaurant. (laughs) Because the kids never forget. They just don't forget. And Ryan especially will sit there, and he sits down at the table, and he looks dead ahead, and his eyes are kind of squinted, and you think he's a 1,000 miles away, and he waits till you take that first bite, and then he says, gotcha. I See, you can teach acts of responsibility a lot better with little games like that than with a lot of harsh punishment. It just doesn't call for it, and I think it's inappropriate. But that's the last thing I intend to say this weekend, unless something comes up I don't anticipate, with regard to the teaching of responsibility. Why? Because everybody talks to parents about how to teach responsibility to your children. If you go down tomorrow or Monday and you get a book from the library on discipline, the illustrations, you check me on this and see if I'm not right, the illustrations will talk to you about how to teach your children responsibility, how to get them to brush their teeth, how to get them to take out the trash and keep the room clean and wash their hands before they eat. The examples will deal with responsibility, virtually all of them. I don't want to talk about that for that reason, because that is the easier half of the parent task. And there is another kind of behavior which the textbooks don't talk about. There's an ominous silence on the subject. So let's just take childish irresponsibility and push it over here to one side. And let's go over to the other side and talk about this other kind of behavior, which I call willful defiance. You see, it is very different in nature from childish irresponsibility. It's not that your child forgot something. It's not that he worked too slowly. It's not that he spilt something. It's not that he was too energetic. It was not that he left something someplace. You see, it's not that he was too immature. It deals instead with an aspect of childish nature that is built into our system. It's in the human computer which causes a child to look you in the eye and say, I know what you want and I won't give it to you. What you gonna do about it? (laughs) Where there is a nose to nose confrontation between children and where the child says, I don't think I'm gonna accept your leadership. And authority and leadership are similar concepts. Now folks, I don't know why it is. I don't know why, I've given a lot of thought to it and I can't tell you. But I know that children care about the issue of who's toughest. That is very important to kids. I'm not just referring to physical strength. I mean strength of courage and strength of confidence. Children care about that issue a great deal. And if you know anything about kids, you know that whenever you move into a new school district or a new neighborhood, uh, your child is likely to have to fight either verbally or physically physically to establish himself on the hierarchy of strength and courage. Uh, And this is why uh, children are kind of have a struggle with each other. This is what's behind the Tom Sawyer-Huck Finn argument where they drew a line in the dirt and dare one another to cross over. When they first meet each other, that kind of conflict is what takes place. This is what's behind two little boys standing on the corner and one says, my daddy can beat up your daddy. I heard a kid the other day said, that's nothing my mama can beat up my daddy. <laughs> but children care about that issue, and we saw it illustrated in our own home. When our daughter was in the fifth grade, Shirley and I did probably the most noble thing we've ever done in our lives. Number one noble right here. We invited all the girls in our daughter's fifth grade class to our house for a slumber party. And I'm not ever gonna do that again, one time. But it was, it was one of the most, I suppose you could say interesting um, <laughs> nights of my life. Those girls came in at five o'clock in the afternoon when their parents brought them. And I only knew about two or three of the girls in the group at that point. And they did not sleep through that night until 11 o'clock the next morning when their parents came and got them. And uh, I did very little sleeping myself, I might say. So I only had from five o'clock one night till 11 o'clock the next morning to observe those kids. But I want to tell you, that was one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever had. To have a social group come in that already was acquainted, it was already well-established, but I was not aware of it, see. And to have just that one night to watch them, by the time they left the next morning, I could tell you where every single girl fell in the hierarchy of strength and courage. See, there was a number one girl, a kind of little queen bee. And when she said, why don't we go to a park? Everybody said, yeah, let's go to a park. We'd like to do that. And when she sat on a park bench, they kind of fought to see who got to sit by her. And when she said something was funny, everybody just broke apart with humor. And when she said, we don't want to do that, well, that was the end of that idea. And everybody sort of did what she said to do and when she was not there there was a second girl in command there was a kind of little pecking order and she took over then and there was a number three very clearly who watched the other two to see if what she was saying was okay and it worked its way on down and there was a poor little puppy dog in last place a little girl who had somehow managed to alienate the whole group and when she said why don't we do this boy that was the death knell of that idea <laughs> and when she said something was funny nobody laughed they didn't think it was funny and when she walked along everybody trying to stay away from her nobody wanted to walk with her and she was clearly in last place and i kind of felt an obligation to talk to her father about it when he came to pick her up at 11 o'clock the next morning and i told him what i'd observed And he said, how well we know. He said, we've wrung our hands about it all year long. She was a cute little girl, but somehow she had managed to turn everybody against her. I noticed that she is not in the school this year, and I think the parents moved, and I think that was a wise idea to kind of break that cycle. But the interesting thing, folks, is that every girl knew where she fell in that hierarchy of strength and courage. Every one of them knew it. I talked to my daughter about it the next morning. I said, Danae, did you notice that some of the girls seem to be respected more than others? And she just took it from there. And she said, oh, yeah, Daddy, everybody knows that. And she named a girl in first place. And she said, as a matter of fact, she's got kind of a group around her and named the other girls in it. And then she says, you know, there's kind of this other group. That's kind of my group. And then there's this other group. And then she named the little girl in last place. See, kids know this matter, they care about this matter of who's in charge, who's tough. It's, that's important to kids. And that's why I can tell you that if you're a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather or a Boy Scout leader or a Brownie leader or a bus driver or a Sunday school teacher, if you lead kids about the third day, somebody's going to say, how tough are you? I don't think you've got the courage to back it up. Let's see what you've got. And I think it's very important to recognize the challenge when it occurs and to know how to respond to it when it takes place. Because if you watch kids, they'll tell you what they're thinking. I talked to a man the other day who told me that his father was a minister. And when he was just a kid in his dad's church, he was sitting down in the congregation one day right near a four-year-old who was just giving his dad fits. I mean, the kid was dropping books on purpose and talking out loud and just really giving everybody fits. And finally, the father had had enough. And he picked him up and he put him over his shoulder and he took him out. And as the kid was going out the door, he called back over his shoulder to the congregation and said, Y'all pray for me. Kids understand that factor. They know it, and they're keenly aware of it. This auditorium, the way it's structured, reminds me of a similar story that probably illustrates the point even more. Uh, A father who told me had a three-year-old child, and he took her to a basketball game. When they got to the gymnasium, which had slanting bleachers like this, the little girl, it was obvious, she wanted to see everything in the gymnasium except the basketball game. And uh, he knew there were some ways that she could get hurt. So they went up to the top and sat down. And then when he saw that she was going to run all over the place, he took her by the hand and he brought her down those steps and out to the line like this where the game was going to be played on the other side of that line. And so he brought her out there and turned her around facing the gymnasium seats. And he said, Janie, now listen to me. This is very important. He said, you can play all over this gymnasium. You can play on that side and you can play in the middle and you can play over there. And you can come down here, if you don't want to climb on the seats, and you can play all up and down here. And you can play around on the side of the bleachers on that side, and back around on that side, and underneath. But Janie, listen to me now. Don't go past this line. You know what Janie did. (laughs) They went back up, and they sat down and the father hadn't any more than sat down and to his amazement, Janie went thumpity bump, 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 bump straight as she could go right down to that gymnasium floor and ran right out to that line and turned around and grinned at her daddy and tossed one foot over it. (laughs) You see what she was saying to him? It was not that she wanted to play over that line. What she was saying is, hey chicken, come down and fight. I don't think you have the courage to back up what you said let's see what you'll do if i don't do what you tell me to do and even the most compliant child will eventually ask you that question what do you do if i don't follow your leadership what do you do if i say that i'm in charge and i think again it is very important to know how to deal with it when it comes now folks i am not a theologian and i'm not a pastor and i'm not a minister i love the lord but i don't have those credentials and what i'm going to say to you at this point may not be accurate, and there are probably people here in this auditorium that are much more qualified at this point than I am. So let me just give you an opinion. In fact, I say that for the whole weekend. I do not claim to have all answers, and I am here to share my ideas, and you are welcome to disagree with them. That's all right. If you and I agree totally on everything, it's obvious that one of us is unnecessary. And I have a good idea which one that might be so uh this is uh, controversial and uh yet i really believe that this inborn nature that i'm talking about this willful defiance is probably what constitutes inborn sin because it seems to me that this is the characteristic that adam and eve showed in the garden Is there not a similarity between the little three-year-old in the gymnasium and Adam and Eve in the garden? For God said, Adam and Eve, you may eat of all the fruit in the garden, but don't eat of the fruit in the center of the garden. Adam and Eve, don't go past this line. And they said, but I want to, but I will have my way. But it does not matter that God said not to do it. I will not follow his leadership. I will not yield to his authority. And I think that kind of response represents a sinful behavior that may explain why you don't find this characteristic in the textbooks, but cause it comes awful close to the concept of inborn sin. There is a nature in children. You and I have it too which leads us to challenge authority, even loving leadership in that sense. And uh, I think, again, we've probably given too little attention to it. Now, when it occurs, it is my opinion that a spanking is a very useful tool for a child between about two and 10. Not because he spilt his milk, not because he left his books at school, not because he lost his bicycle, not because he didn't feed the cat, not because he was irresponsible, But in those moments when that child looks you in the eye and you know you have a contest underway, and when you've drawn a line in the dirt and he walks out there and he tosses his hairy little toe over the line and he lets you know he's looking for a fight, you really shouldn't disappoint him. (laughs) Now, folks, let me hasten to tell you that I'm a member of a medical school faculty. You heard that a few minutes ago. And I'm also an attending staff of a large children's hospital in Los Angeles. And I am keenly aware of the problem of child abuse in our society. It is no small matter. It is probably much worse than most of you realize. It is probably going on all around you. See, the violence that's taking place in our society outside the home is being translated into all home relationships with husbands beating their wives and even vice versa, and with parents beating their children in an indescribable way. I can't tell you how strongly I feel about this. They bring children into our hospital in every imaginable condition. Broken and battered and bruised is not at all uncommon. One of the most common things is for a parent in anger to reach down and grab a child with such forcefulness that the shoulder is separated. That's a fairly common thing to occur. But much more horrible things. If it's horrible, it happens to kids. And it's going on all around us. Do you remember the little girl? In fact, the whole country was talking about her for a while there in Southern California, who was identified in the back room of her parents' house about five years ago, a little girl named Susan. ...who was 13 years of age and had spent her whole life in that back room. And in fact, her father had forbade anybody to even talk to her. And when she was discovered, having never been out of that room... ...she had the language of about a 13-month-old child... ...between 13 and 18 months, a little bit beyond Dada and Mama. She had never seen an automobile. She'd never seen a dog. She'd never ridden in an elevator but this little girl had been in that back room for 13 years and when they found her and brought her to our hospital she was not even toilet trained and the brother said that they had a toilet in that back room and because she was not toilet trained uh, they would tie her on that toilet and go off and leave her and come back perhaps the next morning with her asleep hanging off the side When they found her and brought her to our hospital, she had spent so much time on that toilet that she had a ring of calluses on her buttocks from the amount of time that she'd spent there. Now folks, that kind of thing is all too common. And a much less harsh abuse of children is just everyday stuff. And I want you to know, and I want to stress it, I want to put it in neon lights, that I don't believe in harshness with children. Our kids don't live in that kind of atmosphere. I don't believe in it. You can destroy a child by being oppressive and mean and angry and capricious, where he never knows what he did wrong, when he's gonna get slapped across the mouth for his accidents and mistakes, when you come home tired off the freeway and you kick your kids around, when dad rules with an iron fist and he slams it down and everybody jumps out of a fear relationship. That's not what I'm talking about. But that is very different again than accepting a challenge from a child who says i don't believe you're tough enough to back it up see it has a totally different frame of reference folks it is a real privilege for me tonight to have my mother here especially on this subject
0: check okay all right we're going to we'll pick it up uh, but uh... We, we need to, to stop it right here um, so we want to uh, we want to just take some time and uh... the theme he is a strong willed child and he he spends a great deal of time in in introduction uh, Remember the quote, write this down if you, don't, uh, if you don't have it, and that is that God didn't give me my kids, he loaned them to me. And you and I are stewards over our children's lives. Childish irresponsibility is common, And uh, I think that uh, Dr. Dobson goes a long way in offering his disclaimers. He's talking about uh, defiant children, And that a wise parent has to be able to see the difference between irresponsibility and defiance. And the idea of the fact that a child is going to be irresponsible. They're going to knock over the cup with the juice in it. They're going to forget things that you've told them to do. Uh, they're going, you know, that this is, this is going to happen. And being able to understand this is not defiance. This is not them challenging your authority. It is simply the fact that they're children and that they're small and they are going to forget things. And you are trying to teach them and develop some things in them and teach them responsibility. And when they fail that, uh, it's not the time to uh, treat them with defiance. There's a a big difference. And that correction is for the issue of defiance. Now remember, as uh, Dr. Dobson said, uh, every one of us have a defiant nature. Every one of us have a sinful nature. Christianity 101, basic Bible is this. We all have a sinful nature. Anybody here not agree with that? We all have a sinful nature. God has given us a free will. Every one of us. The Bible says that God breathed the breath of, breath of life in man, and man became a living soul. That is what makes us different than animals. In a little bit, I'm going to preach a sermon about why we are different than animals. But, but we are, and the reason why is that we have a soul. We have a piece of eternity in us. Our soul the Bible says, will exist forever. It will be somewhere forever. And and that is because we have that peace of eternity in us, and that is self-determination. We have a will. The truth is that we don't have to do the will of God. Want a scary truth? You don't have to obey this book. You, You can look at those Ten Commandments, and you can say, I don't want to abide by them, and you can do that. You don't have to be here this morning. You can get up and say, I'm choosing to go. We have a will, and that will can be exercised against God, and he will not violate your will. You don't make people live for God. That's impossible. From time to time, you'll see people, and they'll say, oh, yeah, all those people at that church, they're all brainwashed, and they do whatever the pastor says. And to that, I say, ha! (laughs) Are you kidding me? We have a will. We do. And so when we talk about then human nature, what do you do when you see that beautiful little son or daughter of yours act on their will and say, I'm not going to do what you say? I'm not. This isn't irresponsibility. This isn't not paying attention or knocking over a cup. We're talking about when they know the will of the father or the will of the mother. And they choose to say, I'm gonna challenge you and I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And that starts very small. And they'll do that. And how we go about that, and so uh, you know, he's, he's very clear that we're not talking about child abuse. And we already went over that. Anger disqualifies you. Anger assassinates authority. You delegitimize yourself when you act out of anger. And so I'm gonna trust that you understand that. Uh, And so we're we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But the reality is he does a very good job of of basically saying to children, it really does come down to who's toughest, who's going to win. And I can tell you that a two-year-old can defeat a 30-year-old any time, any time. A two-year-old can simply say I'm going to do it my way and I'm not going to yield to you and, you, you know, they don't fear the action, they don't fear the immediate correction, and they challenge you, and they exercise their will, and it's quite possible that their will can be stronger than your will. And they can wear you down. And they're going to do something, you confront them, they do it again, you spank them, they, you do it again, They, they do, and they'll just keep going on, and on and on, and, and they start to wear you down. And after a while, a parent gets weary and just says, I'm not gonna mess with it anymore. And the child wins that round. And that can happen at the age of two. It can happen at the age of three and four, and pretty soon you develop this accommodating relationship. And the thing is, it may not be other children in the household, not an issue. You tell them, they know you're serious, they comply. But it's possible to have that one who has discovered the power of the will and because they just insist on doing it their way, accommodation is made for them. And it's four, five, seven, nine, 11, 13, and then it gets out of control. And, and it's because they've been conditioned to believe that my will is stronger than everybody else's will. And so this is something that is inside of us. Okay, let's just open it up here. All right, uh, uh, Veronica, Bridget, Selena, David.
3: Um, When you just said that, it reminded me of being a single parent, being the mother and the father, and having to be the disciplinary in the family, and it gets weary after a while. You get tired of it, and then you finally just give up. Because like you said, the kids are going to win eventually, you know, because they'll wear you down. But um, as they get older, it gets more difficult and it's too late, you know. Um, when Caesar and I decided to get married, you know, my son Justin, he was testing. He was testing, you know, because he was only the only man in the family. He was always there for me. He was my right-hand man for the longest time. And now that Caesar came into the picture it was hard for him to step down and I think it, I have a lot to play in it because I put him there yeah. <laughs> you know I relied on him a lot and um, he was testing me just like you were saying you know who are you gonna pick Yeah, <laughs> me um, or your new husband and it like you said you know it is a hard hard decision you know but it you need to be consistent and to make that decision that um, you're not going
0: to win. Yeah. You know. Okay, you, you raised something uh, that I'll just mention here, Veronica, <laughs> real quickly in a more of a general sense. And that is that very often when you have the scenario of blended families and you have people coming in and you have children that are used to just their mother and then you introduce a male into the mix, it can be a real, ch- it can be a real challenging time. Kids are like automatically against that they're they're therefore the status quo just something in them and our fallen nature kind of views the male as authority and we don't like authority a lot of times the kids are dealing with profound disappointment in their biological fathers and so the problem when you don't like listen can I just throw this in it's very important maybe because of boot camp it's really in my heart you have an attitude with your father you you hate your father you're going to project that onto every male authority in your life. You hate your mother, you're going to project that into every female authority in your life. It, I, I know what I'm talking about here just through anecdotal evidence. I've seen it over and over again. I, I, I work with men, and they're constantly insecure in the relationship. they oh, you don't like me. They, either they want to be your best friend, or they don't want to be your friend at all. And, and, and I, I have, you see, they're fatherless. They have issues with their father. I had a very fine disciple, a number you're a great guy. And uh, in so many ways, and, uh, you know, one day I just told him, you know, your problem is that you hate your father. And because you hate your father, you cannot submit to male authority. I've seen it with men, with women. There's some men that if a woman even offers their opinion, they have a fit, an epileptic seizure. They cannot handle a woman speaking into their lives or saying anything to them. And, 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 I, and I learned a long time ago, it's because they hate their mother. Whatever happened between them and mom, every time a woman tries to speak or offers some advice, ev- it immediately these defenses, and, 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 it's, and so these are very powerful forces. And so all of a sudden you step into that arena where just by the very nature of the broken home, there's that hostility. And how you, you handle that and how you, you do that is very, very important. Obviously, you're reassuring your children. You're not rejecting them. But that man can be the greatest blessing in their lives. And you have to have that conviction that this is going to be a blessing to them. That's why you got to marry a good man. But stand for that even when they don't understand it. And then they because they don't see that. can tell you right now with boys i'm preaching on gorillas this morning it's hard to have two male gorillas under the same in the same cage and uh, especially in that kind of setting so it's very natural that's normal for that to happen but if you understand that then you know that that won't always be the case but it just takes time okay but that's a very good point bridget okay
4: so i was thinking about what he said about responsibility and discipline and I know it's hard to believe, but I was, I was one of those kids. It was kind of hard because for me, like, there was an incident where I built a golf course in our front yard. And so the, the first tee was like the first part of the house, and then the second tee was on the other side of the driveway. And I was determined to be able to get the golf ball to the other side of the driveway without breaking anything. And so I would tee off, get the ball over the driveway, but it always landed into the neighbor's bathroom window. And so, and these people, they would wait until my parents would come home, and they'd, they'd bring the golf ball and, and show it to my parents, and they'd say, you, you owe us a new window. And so my dad would spank me. And, and, and I remember thinking, I was so determined to make it to the second tee. And I always did it when my parents were gone because I didn't want to break their, their windshields. And so I was determined. And so he, I got spanked a couple times, but it never worked because I was determined to be able to... to Finish my game. And so the third time or the fourth time, my dad said, okay, that's fine. Um, We're not going to spank you, but that window costs $25. And so he got me in a place where I'm like, okay, $25. And he goes, I will get it from you because my brother and I had jobs. We would always sell peaches on the street or just everything. We were always looking to make money. We were little kids. And so it was interesting because one day I went to go tee off, and I think he put a little note on their window, on the neighbor's window, and it $25. And I dropped the ball into the tee, and I, that was the end of my golf game. That was the end of my career. That was my end of everything. Because he hit me in a place yeah. where it really was a lot more painful than getting spanked. And so for me, getting spanked was nothing. But when he hit me with money, and it was interesting because even for the rest of my life, if you get hit with a $25 fee for a check or something, yeah. oh, my gosh, I'm never going to do that again.
0: It's called, a play, it's called a traffic ticket. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very good. And so be very creative uh, when you want to teach children responsibility and just yelling at them and all that doesn't work. so, okay, how can I be creative to get their attention and find a way to do it? You, I can tell you right now, if you've got uh, uh, children, I, I, you know, ages, I, it's changed. But I will say this, if you wanna get your ch- kids' attention, take away their phone, take away their phone. If you have your children at home and there's misconduct, So if you're afraid to take away their phone, then you have a problem on your hands. Okay, let me say that to you. If you're afraid to take away their phone, I'm not saying that flippantly. You have a real problem because it says two things. Number one, that you're afraid of your child. Okay, you should not do that. Number two, it shows that they're so addicted to their phone, you know it's going to cause an uprising. It's weird, I can see people walking in church, every single service, they walk in, they, you know, people get addicted to those things. And a teenager, I just came out of boot camp, I'm telling you, social media, all the hidden apps that are there, you know, they've got an app now that looks like a calculator. And as you see it, a parent looks at like it's just their calculator, but you press a certain sequence of numbers and it just unleashes all the hidden social media that's there. The things that are going on are absolutely incredible. And if you cannot grab your, your, I was gonna say teenager, but some of them, not even teenagers yet, and cannot get their phone and look at it from time to time, just give me your phone. If you don't do that, they're going to school and not every kid has engaged parents. A lot of these parents are off in their own world. They're on Facebook. They're on the single websites. And they're not enforcing anything with their kids. And so their kids go to you, sit next to your kid at school, and they start showing them, you know, about this and kick and WeChat and everything else. And, 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 and then your your little girl. She wants to be... Uh, socialized, you know, you heard what he just said about describing how kids have pecking orders. And, and so they, uh, they go, and now the popular girl, or whatever, is showing them, you know, you know, she's 12 years old, but she's advanced. She's already exposed. She's already got the flirt on. She's only 12 years old. And so other little girls, they look at that and they think, wow, she's something to be admired. And then she's showing them this and at 12 years old, she, she's on this website and look, grown men are sending me messages. I mean, you think we think we're outraged by that. But to a little 12-year-old girl, that she, wow, she must be something. And so they show them how to download that on their app to show them how to hide it on their, on their phone. And then they come to church and, they, and, and this poison's there. And so you may not be able to always spank somebody, but you have to have the ability to t- t- take their phone away. And if you take it away and they scream bloody murder, you've touched something. You hit what was the equivalent of when uh, and they got in Afghanistan to Tora Bora and uh, got close to Bin Laden and all hell broke loose because they got close to him. And so every parent here that you, you, you're raising your kids, you really it's very, very important that you, you learn to figure out what's going to get their attention. Okay, Selena.
5: Yes. Um, so I, um, during the time of um, when I was in my addiction, I went to a rehab where I could take my children with me. And at that time, they told me that um, I was an abuser, that I had to be careful how i disciplined my children and that's when i had brandon and rj and so i had to learn to discipline them in a different way because um i would hit them and i would hit them ugly and so um before i had alexandra i knew already that i was an abuser i had to be careful because it seemed like when i would hit them and they would cry it would make me madder that they would cry and so then i would hit them harder and harder and i and i my house was ran with an iron fist, and I was the one that ran it. And so, um, you know, my parents even had to intervene at one time because it was really bad. But so as I had Alexandra, I already knew this was, I was already aware of this about myself. And um, so one day, just like Dr. Dobson said, I came home and I'd been around kindergarteners all day long because I was substituting. And I got home and Alexandra um, was having a hard time with her homework and I exploded on her and, um, and I hit her and I sent her upstairs and um, I was already saved and uh, I was just convicted and I sat there and I cried. I got on my knees. I told God I don't want to be like this anymore. So I went upstairs and I asked Alexandra to forgive me and she said, mommy, I forgive you. And I said, will you please pray for me? Um, because I don't want to be like this. You know, I knew it was something in me that I had to get over, and it was something that was still there. So she prayed over me, and she said, Will you please take away all the anger and my mom being mad and give her flowers and butterflies? And so now when I want to get mad, I think of flowers and butterflies, and it's just delivered me. But it took prayer, and it took... You know, me humbling myself and going to my daughter and asking her to forgive me and asking her to pray with me and for me. And that is what actually took it away so
0: that we have a better relationship today. Praise God. Good testimony. Hallelujah. Dave?
6: You know, uh, growing up, like you said, Thompson was talking about the years of discipline. I was uh, about 13 years old when my father died. I was at the age where you should begin to build relationship with your father after the spanking sessions, but I never got that. It was very difficult becoming a parent, how to uh, put that into my kids. I, w- I was the aggressor. And, uh, that's all I knew. I came out of right out of the, the spanking years, and I never got into the loving, if if you will. Um, so. But now I, I, see, I see the difference now because being with my wife and I together, partnering and learning that, I see we were able to balance that out. I was able to learn that. Um, that it was very difficult. I, I got to admit that because I see it now in and out of the church world. Uh, people at the, at the time back then, like he was saying, people took abuse very extremely and they took it overboard but i see now they take the other side overboard that where they don't spank and it's like okay why don't why do we address that and it's it's visible and it's evident and i and i would always pray god help me with helping number one not being so the uh, so much of a aggressor but also showing the other side but balancing that out and we stuck to our guns 18 you get a phone before 18 don't come talk to me I mean, because who's going to pay it? Yeah. That's just one example. But, you know, my kids, my, they appreciate uh, everything that we've done. Uh, can I tell you that when I would come home and my kids would ask me for things, that mom would say no, and I didn't know mom said no. And then I would be like, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. You know, you've been good. You know, you've done your... And mom would be like, oh, what did you just do? I just said no. and you tell And she's like, no, we got to stick to our guns and And I was like, I didn't know. And so the kid's like, oh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And then it's like, no, you're not going to get it because you lied to me. He told me, you you know. And so in my heart, being the father, like I said, not having the the loving of my dad, uh, I was so heartbroken that I couldn't give that to my kid. But yet I said, no, you know what? My wife is is my wife. I'm not going to go against that. And so that was my battle. But I just want to encourage parents, stick to your guns. It comes out in the end. Yes, amen.
0: You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that uh, whoever loves their children will discipline them, and it says they'll discipline them promptly. And it says, but, but to he that spares the rod hates his own son. That's a strong word, you know, we, we love and hate in the context of discipline. But I was, uh, I was talking to our drone instructors. I always talked to them before the boot camp and kind of helped them and Preach a little sermon to him, and I was preaching about this that sparing the rod means to restrain, it means to to withhold. Like the the book of Proverbs says that there are those who withhold and tend to poverty. And the idea of compared to the generous man who's always giving and is blessed, there are people who are holding back and it brings poverty. And that's the same word it's the idea of you're holding back, that you have something of value to give your own child but you're holding it back and what you are giving them is structure and order and boundaries in order to live in that, that, that this is a gift I mean if we think about a generous man maybe giving money to people and we and then the the, the miser the, the, in the scripture that withholds what he has and we think man that guy that guy he's a, that, that guy you know is a bad man that guy He had the ability to help, and he didn't help. But the scripture says this is not just true with money. It's true with discipline. When you have the ability to to provide that, and you say, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do it sparingly that this is something that is good and necessary and helpful. I'll just say this. I see your hands, but I'm going to just say this. Next week, we're going to get more into this. But I'll just tell you that I was thinking about my father. You know, uh, I, I'm the, well, five, one of five sons, and I'm the youngest, and we, as many of you know, we're one year after the other. So he had five boys that were all fairly within six years of each other. And, um, and so there wasn't a lot of, I love you, Dad, or stuff like that. But my father had communicated through his life his love for my mother and his dedication to his children. And, uh, but he also was not afraid to call us out and deal with us and having him do that, I can look back through life as I began to relate with my bosses at work, when I was discipled under Pastor Warner, or just working in the ministry that I'm involved in, the interaction that I have with leadership. The idea of, of, of being corrected was not that big a deal because I'd been corrected. And I, when at that time I'd been corrected, I knew that my father had gone off of me, but I knew he le- never doubted his love for me, never questioned it, never questioned my place in the home. And, and so that made such a difference in so many other areas of life. When I had to deal with authority and authority had to speak into my life or correct me, it didn't flip me out, it didn't send me, it just because I was raised in an atmosphere where I knew that even though I was being corrected, That was done by love. Now, had I never been corrected, I would not have been prepared for correction. Had I been the object of abuse, I would have interpreted that correction in in the wrong way. But as a parent, don't hold back because what you are giving them is very, very powerful. Okay, we'll stop right here. Uh, We'll pick this up next week.